So uh, last Sunday, if you were here, I said that I was officially getting old because I did not have underwear on my Christmas list, but I really wished I would have put underwear on my Christmas list. I think that's a telltale sign that you are getting older when you actually want underwear for Christmas. So Mary then forced me to explain what kind of underwear I particularly liked. Reluctantly, I shared the information. And then one of Santa's Christmas elves showed up my door Monday morning. (laughs) Jerry Shackle got me the underwear that I wanted. My Christmas is off to a fantastic start. Right size and everything. That's kind of creepy, right? (laughs) And I could just imagine Jerry at Target going and running into a friend and, Hey, Jerry, why are you here? What are you up to? Oh, just getting the usual things, you know, bread and milk and some office supplies and my pastor some underwear. (laughs) That's what I'm doing. Well, I want to welcome you back to our sermon series. Here comes heaven, our promised Messiah. What good news that is. And we've been taking a somewhat unique approach uh, to the gospel story, the Christmas story. Instead of just looking solely at the gospels, we are actually looking at the Christmas story through the lens of the Old Testament prophets. And so... Three weeks ago when we started the series, we looked at Matthew 1, and then that took us back to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. And in in those two passages, God was asking us, you know, will you trust me? Two weeks ago, we then looked at a passage in Matthew 2 that led us back to Micah 5. And in those two passages, God was asking, will you humbly receive me? Last Sunday, we checked out another passage in Matthew 2 that led us back to Hosea 11. And in those two passages, we found God asking us, will you be faithful to me? This morning, we're going to look at another passage in Matthew 2. This time, that passage is going to take us back to Jeremiah 31, the passage that Kevin was so kind to read to all of us earlier. And we're going to be finding... That God is going to ask us this question, will you be a part of my new covenant people? So we're going to talk about what that means. Um, And it's going to take just a little while to to really uh, explain all that. But if you stick with me, I think there's just some gold nuggets here for us to take hold of. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for each person that is here today. And we're so grateful for Emmanuel, that you moved into our neighborhood, that we have beheld your glory, that you have come to rescue us, to liberate us, to free us, and you have come to be with us forever. We're so thankful for the promise that you'll never leave nor forsake us, that no matter what we go through, no matter what storms come our way, no matter what valleys we journey through, you will be faithful. 
your rod and your staff will comfort us and guide us and protect us. Lord, I pray that as we think about the new covenant and what that means and what that entails, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would gain a greater appreciation for this Messiah that has come, for heaven coming down in the person of Jesus. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. All right, let me read this short passage to you in Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18. So Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he set forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts. From two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Wow, that is a heavy passage, right? In this passage, we have King Herod, he's livid. He's livid because he's the ruler of Judea, and he was considered the king of the Jews, and he caught wind that this baby was born that people are calling the Messiah, the new and real king of the Jews. And he is livid, right? And so... This sent Herod, who was already extremely paranoid about somebody taking his throne, it just sent him over the edge. It really did. You can just imagine Herod thinking, oh no, people think this is the new king of the Jews, and they're already saying it and proclaiming it. I must find this baby, kill this baby, before this gains any more traction, any more momentum. And so, what King Herod did is he pulled together the experts of the, the Hebrew scriptures, and he said, he said to them, where, where is this baby at? Where was this baby born? Where was this baby predicted to be born? And the experts of the Hebrew scriptures say, well, that's easy, Bethlehem. And so what Herod does, he, uh, <laughs> he sends the wise men to go locate the baby in Bethlehem. And he tells them, hey, send word back once you find him, because I, too, want to go and worship this new king. Now, of course, we know Herod was lying. He was looking to get rid of this baby. He wanted to know where Jesus was at for that purpose. And you can just imagine this impatient man growing more and more impatient uh, as the wise men didn't return. You can imagine Herod thinking like, all right, tomorrow, surely they're going to be back. And they're going to give me word of where this baby's at. And as days went by and days went by, you can just imagine the fire and the fury and this evil man growing and growing. And so he finally comes to the realization that the wise men aren't coming back. And that's when he goes on a rampage. And he ascertained from the experts that this baby couldn't have been more than two years old. And so what he decides to do is he decides, you know what, 
I'm just going to kill all the children that are two years old and younger in Bethlehem. That's what I'm going to do, right? And so Herod, he has it done. He has it, you know, done. He, he sends his people to accomplish that task. The guy was nuts. The children were slaughtered. And it's at this point in recounting this tragic episode that Matthew then, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah. Check this out. Matthew 2.18, a voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, why did Matthew throw in this quote here? Why, you know, is it not enough just to simply note the event? Is it not enough? I mean, this event was so disturbing. Why go into details? In their original language, the verbs that are used to signify loud wailing that comes from, uh, the verbs are used to describe wailing that comes from the depths of grief. You know, why include these details? Why describe mothers wailing in sorrow and despair because their children have been murdered? Well, one reason is that Matthew, once again, wants us to see that Jesus fulfills yet another prophecy regarding the Messiah. And therefore, Jesus was and is truly the promised one. But there's another reason that I think Matthew quotes this part of the Old Testament. And in order to understand why he quotes Jeremiah 31, you need to know a little bit about this book in this passage. So let me just explain a little bit of its background to you. So Jeremiah, he was an Israelite priest and he worked and he lived in Jerusalem in the final decades of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel. And Jeremiah, he was called by God uh, to tell the people of Judah the severe consequences that would come to them if they continued to rebel against God and break the covenant that God had made with them and they had made with God. And Jeremiah even predicts that Babylon is going to be used to punish unfaithful Judah. Now, a good way to think of a covenant, because this is not a word that we use very often, a good way to think of a, of, of a covenant with God uh, in the good way to think of the covenant that he made with Judah is to think in terms of a partnership. So a partnership is when two parties are working together to accomplish one goal. And in this covenant, or in a covenant, God, what he does is he makes promises. And then in exchange, he asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And God made such a covenant with the people of Judah. Through Moses, God made this covenant with Judah, and he promised them blessing. He promised them good things. And in return, he required that they obeyed his laws. And if they did obey his laws, then God and the people of Judah would work together to accomplish 
uh, the goal, the twofold goal of showing the rest of the world what God is like and also inviting the rest of the nations into a partnership relationship with God so that they too could be blessed. That's what the old covenant was all about. And what Jeremiah does in the first half of his book is he laments the fact that Judah did not uh, keep up their parts of the covenant. They failed in their commitment to God. They ended up worshiping all kinds of Canaanite gods instead of the, the one true God, the leaders of the people in Judah, they became really corrupt and they forsook the, the covenant as well. And then this all led to just rampant social injustice in the nation of Judah. The widows, the poor, the, the, the hurting were all being taken advantage of, which was in clear violation of God's law in the Old Testament. And so it's just a sad, sad thing. And no matter how much Judah and the nation's people were warned about coming judgment, if they continued to live in rebellion against God, they still would not turn from their wicked ways, and they persisted in rebellion. And so Jeremiah, he receives this revelation from God that God is going to use Babylon to punish unfaithful Judah. Babylon will capture the people who live in Judah, and they will exile them, export them to Babylon. And then he also, Jeremiah, gets this vision from God. He envisions Rachel lamenting over her lost children. Rachel was considered the mother of the people who lived in Judah. The people that lived in Judah uh, they, they were the ones that descended from Rachel. And so Jeremiah is imagining Rachel in her grave at Ramah because they believe that's where she was buried, which was six miles north of Jerusalem. Jeremiah is imagining her in her grave weeping because her children are being exported off to Babylon. And in fact, the road that they would have traveled on to Babylon would have gone through Ramah. Here's one connection that I think God wants us to make, and I think Matthew wants us to make. Just as Rachel gave up her child Judah to a road of suffering, on that first Christmas morning, God too was giving up his child to a path of suffering. You see, Jesus' suffering didn't start at the, at the cross. Jesus' suffering started the moment he was born, and it continued through the cross. He wasn't born in the comfort and safety of a sanitized modern-day hospital with advanced technology and people trained in how to deliver a baby. You know, he wasn't born in that sort of environment. He, wasn't, he was born in the middle of nowhere in the dirt and grime of a functional 
working animal shelter, and then he was laid in a feeding trough. He and his family didn't even own the barn that they were in. Not too long after his birth, as we've read, this powerful man, Herod, is looking to kill him. And then on the run, they have to, you know, flee to Egypt. And then Jesus, he works the, the hard job of the, the labor-intense job of being a carpenter. And then he goes on to develop relationships with 12 guys, close ones that he spent three years with, 24-7 with, and they all later abandon him. He spends years teaching his own people, the Israel people, the truth about God, and they reject him, arrest him, and then allow him to experience an unfair trial. And then he is brutally murdered through beatings and floggings and then ultimately crucifixion, which the Romans said was the most wretched way to die, and they reserved it for the very worst criminals. No wonder their prophet Isaiah calls Jesus a man of sorrows. Just as Rachel handed her children over to suffering, God on that first Christmas was handing his one and only over to a path of suffering. And here's what's interesting. Unlike Rachel, who was forced to hand her children over to that suffering because of their unfaithfulness to God and the covenant he had made with them, Jesus was placed on that path of suffering. But unlike Israel and Judah, he was faithful to the Father in every single way. Why? What was God doing? After Jeremiah visioned Rachel weeping over over her children and being carted because they were carted off to exile in Babylon, God told Rachel in Jeremiah 31.16, To refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Now, why would God tell Rachel, who just lost her children, to stop the weeping? Because God was going to one day establish a new covenant with her children. There was hope. Things wouldn't always be this way. He would once again enter into a partnership relationship with the people of Judah. He would once again make promises to them. He would once again require a certain commitment from them. Jeremiah stated in in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 40, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. In their sin, I will remember no more. You see, the promises of the new covenant that Rachel's children would receive are so, so tremendous and so much better than the promises of the old covenant. Let me explain. God was, was, was saying that one day he would forgive Rachel's children, the people of Judah, of their sin. And not just forgive it, but he would remember it no more. And that meant that they would not have to fear God's judgment anymore. Not only that, with their sin forgiven and forgotten, they would be free to know their holy God individually and personally. They all shall know me, Jeremiah 31, 34 says. And yet there is still more. And you think about the old covenant. They couldn't approach God directly. Only the high priest could go into the holy of holies where God's personal presence dwelt one time of year. But Jeremiah is saying they will know me individually and personally, and there's still more. God also promised to write his law on the minds of Rachel's children in the hearts of Rachel's children. In other words, God would give them this desire, this knowledge, and this power to obey his law so that they actually could be faithful to him. The question is, now, if this is the new covenant, who's going to mediate this new covenant? If Moses was the mediator of this new covenant, the go-between between God and the people, who is going to be the go-between between God and the people of Judah for this new covenant? Jeremiah 33 states who the mediator of the new covenant would be. Jeremiah 33:15 says, "In those days, and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth." Now, don't you see why Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31 here? He is saying loudly and clearly, and the Jewish people would have known this. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. God was using Matthew to declare that this baby in the manger was the righteous branch of David that was going to usher, into the, uh, usher in the new covenant with Rachel's children. But this raises a question. If the terms, think about this, if the terms of the new covenant included this promise for God, from God, that he would forgive the sin of Rachel's children and remember it no more, would God just then choose to pretend that they never sinned? Would he just turn a blind eye to their sin and pretend that it didn't exist? Would he declare All right, so God, he said that the just penalty, the just punishment for sin is death. Wages of sin is death. So is God just going to ignore 
the justice of his word and his law and of his being? Would he change himself by now deciding that sin was okay? Would he forsake his holiness? And this leads us back to the question that I asked at the beginning. Why did God willingly put his one and only son on the path of suffering, even though his son was and would be faithful to him in every way? The answer is so that he could punish the past, the present, and the future sin of Rachel's children without punishing them. So that they could experience the new covenant. You see, Jesus' suffering enabled God to retain his holiness and justice, but also extend forgiveness, mercy, and grace. In Jesus' suffering, he took on Rachel's children's iniquity, their sin. He took it all on. And in doing so, he satisfied God's justice. And yet, simultaneously, he removed their rap sheet from them so that they could accept God and experience the, the new covenant so that they could be accepted by God, which satisfied God's mercy and grace. And now... Because they have been reconciled to God, God could now write on the hearts and minds of Rachel's children his law. And they could know him personally. You see, justice and grace were obtained by the blood of Jesus. And that is why Jesus, remember at the Lord's Supper, when he has the cup, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Now, this is good news for the descendants of Rachel, but what about you and me? As far as I know, none of us descend in this room from Rachel. And that's why when Jesus was a little over a month old, Mary and Joseph, they go to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate Jesus to God the Father and at the temple, there was this man named Simeon, and Simeon took Jesus in his arms, and he declared in your in Luke 2, 29-32, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of, check this out, all peoples, a light to bring revelation to who? The Jewish people only, the descendants of Rachel only know to the Gentiles, which includes all non-Jewish people. In the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon was saying that Jesus' birth was not just good news for the Jewish people, but it was also good news for all of us non-Jewish people. Because through Jesus, they too could experience the new covenant. And that's why we sing at Christmas time, joy to the world. Not joy to Judah, joy to Israel, joy to Rachel's children. We can experience the new covenant and the promises that it contains from God.
Our sins can be forgiven and remembered no more. We don't have to ever fear God's judgment again. We can know God both individually and personally. We can have God's law written on our hearts, written on our minds, so that we have the knowledge, so that we have the desire, so that we have the power to obey his law and be faithful to him. What a gift that is. In the new covenant, is not a temporary thing. It is an everlasting covenant. How remarkable. Now remember that a covenant is a partnership between God and people. And God makes promises and he requires certain commitments. And then together they accomplish a goal. So what is our end of this bargain? What is our end of this covenant? In the Old Covenant, God promised blessings if the Israelite people obeyed his law. What does God require for a person to experience the blessings of the New Covenant? In the New Covenant, we are called, the only requirement we have is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's it. We must admit that we have rebelled against God in thought, in word, in deed. And we must ask for God's forgiveness. That's the repent part. And then we must trust that Christ, through his suffering that started at his birth, paid the penalty for our sin, past, present, and future, so we could be forgiven. And that by his spirit, he will write his law on our hearts and minds so that we can be faithful to him. That's the faith part. You don't have to live out the Ten Commandments to be a part of the new covenants. I mean, we got we to gotta be careful here. That's not what gets us into the covenant and the agreement. And if we break them, we're not going to be cast out of the new covenant, right? But God does want us to keep those commandments. But it's not so that we're accepted and so we can be blessed and accepted by him. We already got that. So we can honor and glorify him, right? You don't have to get your act together and then God will bless you. You don't have to get rid of all your deep, dark sins and then God will bless you. The only requirement in order to enter into this new, everlasting partnership with God is that you humbly come to him in repentance and faith. That is it. And what's the goal you're going to be accomplishing with God if you choose to enter into that covenant? Because the invitation's there. It's on the table. You will work with him to display his glory in the world. And you will work with him to invite other people and establish other people in the new covenant, into the new covenant. And so I ask you this morning, have you humbly come to Jesus in repentance and faith? Are you a part of the new covenant people of God? That's the question God is asking you this morning. Are you a part of the new covenant people of God? Are you experiencing the promises of the new covenant? Don't you see that like the Israelites, you do not have the power to fix your heart. They tried for hundreds of years and they couldn't do it. What makes you think that you can do it in your short lifetime? Don't you see that cut off from God, you are dead in sin and headed for judgment? Enter the new covenant through repentance and faith. 
And for those of you that are here today and have, by Christ, through faith in him, have entered into that new covenant, will you praise him with every fiber of your being this Christmas? He didn't have to offer this new covenant to us, which is so much more amazing than the old. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to go on that path of suffering to make it possible for us. You see, Christmas declares that the new covenant is here. Come, be a part of it. The real gift of Christmas is the new covenant and the mediator of that new covenant, Jesus. He is the king. Come, let us adore him, right? For he alone is worthy. We'll give him all the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. And for your great, great love for us. Thank you that you offer a new covenant. Thank you that you offer a new partnership that is so much better than the old. That you have done everything needed for us to be accepted by the Father and be blessed by him. And we are grateful for that. And at the very same time, because you went on that path of suffering, you satisfied God's justice. Man can't think this stuff up. We are thankful that you are the Messiah, the King. May our hearts worship you fully this Christmas. And may every gift we give and receive be a reminder of this wonderful gift of the new covenant and its great mediator, Jesus Christ. It's in your name, King Jesus, that we pray. Amen.